Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. This is about a family descended from an African slave, a family that turned white, whose lines turned white, a family whose lines stayed black or even drifted in between. There are characters of every sort in this family. My great-great-great-great-grandfather lived next to James Madison and built a tobacco barn for the Madison family. He moved to Kentucky and died in poverty. My fourth great-grandfather was poor but still managed to own a slave of his own. A neighbor of theirs, another Mazinga, was sold into slavery himself. Mazingos were abolitionists and progressives and Confederate soldiers and members of the Ku Klux Klan. I joked that the Klansmen were no doubt the only white supremacists in the country with, ban <laughs> with Bantu last names. <laughs> so my book has two threads. My own journey to learn this history, the secret past, to meet Mazingos and get their take on it, and to find our two, true point of origin in Africa. I took two trips to slave ports in Africa to understand the trade there on that side of the Atlantic and how our ancestor might have come here. The other thread of the is the narrative history itself. Following a line of people from the slave coast of, of the Congo to a suburban Southern California kid who grew up thinking his name was Italian. <laughs> I'll start with a passage of how I first learned about this history, living in a planned community of Dana Point built by a company named Avco. I'm gonna be like Paul Ryan drinking water, honestly. <laughs> in this place where new cities and cultures and pastimes just boiled up, your narrative felt like it was yours alone. There was no sense of a longer one threading through generations whose struggles, secrets, failures, ambitions, and dreams propelled the epic to your moment on stage. But there was this name everyone kept asking about, Mozingo. No corporate committee at Avco invented that. It did sound kind of Italian. Then one day my dad came home with news that he had lunch with an attorney near his office named Glenn Mozingo. We all talked it over at dinner. I was about 12 and couldn't believe that there was another Mozingo in town. I thought we were a lone tribe. What did he know about our history? He said he was down in Calexico and the phone book was filled with Mazingos, my dad told us. 
I knew vaguely of Calexico, sitting on the California side of the Mexico border. They're all bass sheep herders, apparently, my dad said. Sheep herders, I thought, stricken. Sounded so old world. I never questioned the underpinnings of this story. Did the white pages list Tomas, Mozingo, Shepherd, Basque? <laughs> We'd heard of the Basque country as a possible origin once before, vaguely connected to a rumor espoused by my dad's mom that the name arose from Montzingo, E-A-U, a French or Swiss mountain so discreet as not to be found on any map. And we knew my mom's side had lots of Basque, so it was no big leap. My dad was even writing a novel set in the Basque country. So we were Basque, not Italian, that easy. The Basque phase lasted through college and two years of laying tile after that. On the first day of grad school in Los Angeles, I found myself remarkably in the office of a broadcast journalism professor named Sherry Mazingo. She was short and gruff and black with a low nasal voice, a great cackle and an unnerving way of pausing for extended periods of time and conversation. She said, I, I went to a family reunion in North Carolina and I met this woman named Millicent Remy, she said, who had done all this research on the family name. You need to talk to Millicent. She said, we all descend from a man named Edward, Edward Mazingo, who was living in Virginia in the 1600s. He was black. Hmm, I said in that high arching tone in which you might say, I'll be damned. <laughs> my language skills had, had deteriorated sharply during my tile years. Sherry continued, Millicent said he was a warrior from the Congo that our name is Bantu. This came so out of nowhere, I struggled to find an appropriate response. We, al we always heard it was Basque, I managed. She shrugged, bored with me, no doubt, and looked to someone waiting outside her office. Well, there you go, she said. I called my parents to tell them to prepare for the Bantu phase. They laughed, dutifully noting Grandma Helen would roll over in her grave. The news jogged a memory from my dad. Soon after he opened his dental practice in Tustin with a friend named Tony Mumolo from UCLA, a black woman was waiting at the counter of Mumolo and Mazingo, DDS, when my dad came out of the operatory. He's the dentist, she asked angrily, and stormed out. What was that about, my dad asked the receptionist. Colleagues took to calling them the witch doctors after that. <laughs> the Bantu news felt like a great lark, too, too strange and lacking in context to take seriously. At the time I'd been living for a couple weeks with my Uncle Joe in the old home in the valley, he'd inherited it. My uncle was a leisurely man of more than leisurely girth, who was as unbothered and genial as anyone I knew. He was a manager in the City of Los Angeles Information Technology Department. He bought a giant RV and parked it in the backyard, seating the stale-smelling house to his two Springer Spaniels and his ever-growing piles of impulse buys. One night, I told him about the man in Virginia and our Bantu roots. You know, he said, Dad always said the Mazingos came from Virginia back in colonial times. I had never heard this, and it hadn't thought any lore had passed down about our ancestry. Maybe Sherry was right. Why couldn't we have had a black answer, ancestor? Ten or so generations had passed since then. Based on photos of my mom's brown relatives in once more southern France, we had certainly got a much healthier dose of African blood from them. But over the next year or two, this Bantu thing began to take root in my imagination. An African name had survived the entire span of American history, and I had it. Okay, that's... Okay, so all Mazingos in America descend from one man, Edward Mazingo, who came to the English colony of Virginia when it was still just this wretched outpost struggling to survive. They had these huge Indian uprisings that would kill ma half the population and starvations and plagues and everything else. 
he was taken from Africa as a slave, probably headed for Brazil or the Caribbean. For whatever reason, he ended up in this backwater of Jamestown, where he was signed on as, as an indentured servant. Slavery really hadn't taken root in America yet, um, and the death rate was so terrible that having a slave for life didn't really mean much. Workers would be less prone to, to escape. They'd be better workers if they thought they might be free someday. So looking into Edward's life, I learned that this very first chapter of Amer African American history was different than anything I'd ever heard or expected. Poor whites and blacks at the time intermingled and got along. They drank together, they gambled, did business together, had romantic relations together, and even got married, legally married. There was this brief period of mixing before the colonial leaders created a monstrous institution with slavery and marginalized the free blacks with oppressive laws. One historian said these laws turned free people of color into a pariah class. Edward sued for his freedom in 1672 and won. I have a copy of the original ruling that you could look at later. Um, after that, he went on to marry an Englishwoman, became a tobacco farmer, carpenter, and fiddler. And I, so I became very obsessed with learning about him once, once I heard about him. Learning how he lived, how he got along with his neighbors, what he did. Um, was he an outcast in society, or was he somehow accepted? So I'll read a little bit now about what I found on my first trip to Virginia. Well, he came to Jamestown. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Since it's so small, just jump in with questions whenever you want. The, um, Jamestown is where the colony started, obviously. And that when he arrived, he was there. But his, his owner kept getting more and more land, moving more and more north. So by the time he was free, he was in the northern neck which is farther up, more towards the Potomac. So it, it, but it was really isolated back then. Edward was probably between 10 and 15 years old when he arrived in the year of the Indian attack of 1644. That he kept his own name to suggest he was old enough to assert himself and may have been Christian, for the English briefly afforded more rights to the converted. It was very rare for an African to retain his own name in the New World. Most were listed on arrival by a Spanish, Portuguese, or English first name, followed by the word Negro or the country of origin, Antonio a Negro, Angela a Negro. And as they were sucked into the gathering stream of chattel slavery and became little more than property, they fell under their master's name. Young Edward became a servant of Colonel John Walker, one of the great planters and a member of the colony's legislature. Edward would work for the Walker's family for 28 years. When Colonel Walker, Walker died in 1668 in the Northern Neck, Edward stayed with the widow when she married Colonel John Stone. Edward most likely first sued for his freedom in county court, then the ruling was appealed by one side to the, or the other side to the general court. The spelling of Edward's name in the Jamestown court decision may have been arbitrary, a, spelled, a spelling very greatly even among literate people's names. It would waver and drift among his descendants, but by and large remain the way it was spelled that day, M-O-Z-I-N-G-O. Edward lived another 40 years after he was freed, settling in the northern neck, on or next to the property of Walker's daughter Anne and her husband. He married a woman named Margaret. They had three sons and grew tobacco and raised livestock in a little creek called Pantico Run on the border of Richmond and Westmoreland counties. What we know about Margaret is circumstantial. A professional genealogist wrote a lineage report on the Mazingos, concluding that she was the white daughter of Richard and Elizabeth Bailey, who were people of high station. The Bailey's son, Samuel, was a lawyer and lived next door to Margaret and Edward and posted a bond to secure their appearance in a court case, something that relatives commonly did, commonly did for each other. 
His name showed up in numerous land leases and lawsuits involving Edward and Margaret and the two of their sons who survived to adulthood. If Samuel was not Margaret's brother, he was, a close, he was close to the family somehow. Debt was a way of life in Virginia, and pro forma lawsuits over payments of them were ubiquitous in the court record. Edward was as much a part of that system as anyone else. Despite the hardening of racism at the time, the court books show him standing up for himself, suing for tobacco he felt he was owed, and fighting similar suits against him. Edward and Margaret seemed to be well established in society. According to Mark's report, quote, the neighbors and associates of Edward Mazinger were, were closely intermarried, so it must be presumed that they knew of Edward's birth status. His race must have been obvious. In spite of this, they interacted with him freely. His neighbors, even, even Colonel Pierce, called him Ned. So that's kind of a glimpse of his life. And when you look at his will, he was doing very well for himself too. His possessions suggested he was, he was rising above just being a poor farmer, just kind of a arguably middle class situation. Um, but, but that didn't last because the, this little brief period where they didn't really have any laws addressing how Africans were supposed to be dealt with quickly changed and they, they, they barred intermarriage. Anyone coming across the sea who wasn't a Christian, which really only applied to Africans, were immediately put into slavery. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't own property and, well, they could own property, but they couldn't have guns. There were all sorts of things that just pushed them completely into the margins. So Edward's children and grandchildren did not do so well, and they began to move out of the northern neck within three generations. Most were poor, considered mixed race, clearly part of the pariah class. They were getting in trouble with the law all the time. They splintered off in every direction, which is why Mazingos have dozens of stories of where they came from. France, Spain, Italy, Hungary, the Basque country, Portugal. They didn't, they didn't get to get together and come up with one consistent story about their origins. They each came up with their, their own. Once, once they were way out there in a place, no one could call them out on it. That's why we have so many. After this, most lines were passing as white, but others never crossed the line and remained tenuously part of the black culture. So first I'll read about my meeting with Junior Mazingo the first Mazingo I met in my travels. Junior shows just how deeply the Mazingo story had been buried. He, he grew up literally right where Edward Mazingo had settled and knew nothing about him. He fished the same creeks, he'd never heard anything about him, and none of the people there did. They thought they got there in the 1800s, you know, when they were Italians that got there in the 1800s. And their lines are, and if you, they just went into their own courthouse, they could just check their line, boom, 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 right down to Edward Mazingo. <laughs> but I guess people were scared to try that. The junior's a little bit rough. I turned up to see, I turned up Cedar Grove and parked in the driveway of Junior's brick colonial era house. This is nice, I thought, but it looked empty. And honestly, it didn't seem like the home of a man whose actual birth certificate name was Junior who named his own son Elvis. And then I, then I saw someone across the street waving in front of an old wood frame farmhouse and a scattering of old trucks and eviscerated appliances. Over here! I crossed over and parked next to a rusted tractor, collapsed in the dirt, and some rickety kennels along a great stand of trees of half dozen hunting dogs clamored to be let out. They think they're going hunting, he said. How are you doing? We shook hands. Good, good, thanks for meeting me. It's good to meet another Mazingo. Junior was short, solid, pale-skinned of 60, 
I'm sorry, was a short, solid, pale-skinned man of 66 with sharp hazel eyes and a broken vein burl of a nose. He wore a blue flannel shirt with a crinkled pack of Southern Pride tobacco in the pocket and a stiff, camouflaged trucker's hat perched high on his head, as if the wind had discreetly dropped it there and might soon reclaim it. Well, come on in, he said. He sat down, we sat down at a warm maple table in the kitchen. And I told him I was looking into our ancestry. I started by asking about his family. We grew up in Farmer's Fork, all them ones that I knew were around there. It's interesting because we have a common ancestor who lived right by Farmer's Fork in the 1670s, Edward. So Mazingas have been here ever since. I guess so, he said. He knew only as far back as his dad's granddaddy. He said he ran across other Mazingos now and then, mainly Sox Mazingos who sold socks at the swap meet and lived up by Mazingo Road. I think Sox is supposed to be akin to us. Him and I were talking, but we don't know where, if we're kin or not. He also knew of a clan of buck mizingos down the road, but he'd never met them. I asked him if he ever talked to his father or uncle about their background. They didn't talk and we didn't ask. We knew not to ask about our old people back then. His tone suggested an aggressive lack of interest. Did he wonder about the name? It's Italian, isn't it? He asked, shrugging. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah, I said. He went upstairs to get something. Show him my deadheads, mama, he called out. Mama was his wife, who called me into the sweltering living room, which, which had a big oil heater in the center. Half a dozen deer heads were mounted on the paneled wall. I must have heard deer is dead, but couldn't be sure as the heads were both. He and Elvis shot these, she said. Is Elvis around? Nah, he's out. That one's a 10, Junior said, coming back down. He's got two little kickers, pointing to one of the heads. He had brought down an old Remington shotgun he'd inherited. It's all I got from my granddaddy. I gave, it, I gave it a feel and admired the craftsmanship, thinking of the Winchester 32 caliber on my parents' mantle, the only thing passed down to my father. We stepped back outside. The fields were gray and brittle with broken stalks of corn. Junior was just renting this house. For all the time here, the family had not amassed any land. They had only their hands to survive by, working in mills or tilling the depleted red soil and rented patches of land. His dad was a tenant farmer and never learned to read. He lost his thumb in a mill and signed his name with an X. Junior worked for 44 years at an elastic plant and still mowed lawns to help pay the rent. Was this the invisible legacy of the private class, of the pariah class, working generation after generation, rarely getting more than one step or two above subsistence? I later found that in the late 1700s, Junior's ancestors were still considered mixed race. The three brothers of his great, fourth great grandfather appeared on a court registry of free mulattoes which along with registries of, quote, free Negroes, were kept so authorities knew which people of color were not enslaved. Status was fixed in these parts at the end of the 17th century, and the stigma of mixed race must have imprinted itself on the Mazingo family and passed on in the collective consciousness for generations. The Walkers are still landed gentry with a good name, and the Mazingos are rednecks with a crazy name. Junior and I walked to the end of the drive, a virtual scrapyard of pickups and blazers and varying degrees of dismantlement. He showed me how the tracking device on his truck monitored the whereabouts of his hunting dogs. He had seven hounds and four beagles in the kennel. What do you do the what do you go do the beagles go after, I asked. They run rabbits. I was stalling, trying to think of how to raise the race question. I'd envisioned myself making some dramatic proclamation of the truth, no matter how unwelcome it might be. But I suddenly felt that it would it would be a gimmick, and not particularly wise, but with his guns. Who was I to show up and bother this man with something he didn't want to hear? 
We chatted more about Mazingos. His nephew was a minor league baseball player, famous around these parts. He mentioned that Buck Mazingos all had one green eye, one blue eye, and a streak of white hair. He, this mention of appearances gave me a lame way in. What about black Mazingos, I said. Never heard that he's shot back. Really, none? Long pause. I heard there were some in North Carolina. I never heard that. Had you ever heard anyone say that the name might be African? His look with those sharp pupils was the puzzled stare you might give to someone who after an hour of conversation you suddenly realize is insane. It was as if I had asked him if he thought we were descended from a tribe of potted ferns. He said nothing. I let it go, thanked him for his time, and drove off. Okay. So I'm going to skip ahead now to meet real quick to just introduce you to his son, Elvis, um, whose children are bringing the Masingo story full circle in a way I hadn't expected, especially having met Junior. <laughs> they were all having kids with and getting married to African Americans. And they live just a few miles from where Edward and Margaret raised their biracial children. So this is a pretty much of a redneck family. I knocked on the trailer door. Yes, a woman's voice came through the screen. I'm looking for Elvis Mazingo. Oh yes, she said, and called out, Elvis. Mild groaning and shuffling emanated from the back. He pulled the shirt on and opened the screen door. He looked nothing like his father or what I expected. He had a slight build and a kindly pale face. I met your father a while ago when I was doing research on the family, I said. Oh yeah, come on in. And cleared some baby toys off the couch for me to sit. His wife, Pat, much larger than he, sat in a plastic chair. I gave my pitch about looking into our origins. I always thought it was Indian, Elvis said. When I was, young when I was a young boy, we were told we were Cherokee Indians. There was a quiet politeness in the way he spoke. When I had first heard about Elvis and all the deer he had shot, I pictured a caricature of an angry redneck. Now I winced at that easy stereotyping. I told him about Edward, trying to make a connection of his having mixed-race grandchildren. That's what I wanted to hear about. I have five children, all of them have black children, said Pat, his wife. This was delivered as an objective fact. So what do you think of your kids having black children, I asked both of them. Pat chimed in first. It didn't bother me because when I was working on my grandfather raised me. He had black people working for him and with him, so I was around them and realized they weren't bad. She said her best friend, Sarah Dixon, was black. What about you, Elvis? How old are you? 49. When you grew up, this would have been kind of a scandal, right? I didn't agree with it at first, he said. But what can I do? I can't change it. Does it bother you at all? No, no not, not no more, it doesn't. You, did you struggle with it for a while? Nope. The 17-year-old, 17, the 17 their 17-year-old daughter, Cindy, came in wearing a tight, tank top and shorts that were both wrestling ample snow white flesh with lots of piercings. She had a nine-year-old girl named Nikila whom Pat was holding and who must have weighed 30 pounds. Elvis's other dark-toned grandchildren in the trailer yard, Quentin, Trishawn, Kiara, Tyler. I'd seen interracial couples all over Tappahannock and was curious about how such a rigidly divided society had so quickly turned into a mixed race free-for-all. Elvis's brother told me it started in the trailer parks where everyone lived closely and lived close by and shared much in common, but I had no idea how, about how to ask about it. They were staring at me, wondering what I was doing there. I stalled just like I had with his father, telling Elvis his trailer was surprisingly roomy. Why didn't you just ask her, Pat said. She only likes black guys. 
So that's who you mostly date, asked Cindy, struggling for words. Inside, I was dying. She shrugged and looked like she was laughing at me inside. So, I said, I knew, I was, I knew as I was uttering this that it was undoubtedly the worst question I had ever asked as a journalist. <laughs> what is it that you like about black guys? <laughs> she shrugged again and lingered for about 20 seconds without saying a word, then bolted out the screen door. I thought for a fleeting moment how this interview might have gone in 1705 with Edward's wife. So Margaret, what is it that attracted you to this Negro man? Elvis Jr., who was 24 and looked like someone in a 1990s boy band, had stepped in and was sitting there smirking. He only likes black girls too, Pat said. I glanced at him, hoping he might pipe up. He looked at me like I was a freak and was gone within a minute. <laughs> I was on such nakedly false ground, trying to dissect basic human attraction as if it were some strange phenomenon, not just a natural order when the color line fell away. Race simply lost its status. It was a deflated concept. I was trying to analyze the absence it once filled. More than three centuries after whites and blacks were forced to stop mixing in this part of Virginia, they were blithely doing it again. It struck me that America, finally easing away from its cursed preoccupation with race, was looking forward to some grand moment to, procl to proclaim the battle was over, when really it might just sputter out like this, quietly, family by family, with a shrug. Not no more, it doesn't. So that was Elvis. Um, Now I will read a little bit about the most interesting family. One, one member is represented here. <laughs> um, was the branch that never crossed the color line. There are seven, seven siblings that look nothing alike. The youngest sees himself as more white than black. Two others are just the opposite. Several don't identify with any race. So this passage starts with their grandfather, James, and their father, Freddie. James had married, and, and this line had moved, to, just to say, this line had moved out of Virginia when Virginia's laws became really harsh on mixed race and any free people of color. So they started pouring into North Carolina where the lies, laws were a little bit more lenient. So that's kind of how they ended up there. Um, James, their grandfather, had married Betsy Johnson, who was said to be half white and half Croatan Indian. She had two sisters with light hair and blue eyes. James told his three sons that if they didn't marry light-skinned women, he'd disown them. Under the weight of Jim Crow, slight differences in skin tone and hair texture held outlandishly inflated import in the mixed-race community. When Freddie married the darker-skinned Naomi Hobbs, his dad never set foot in his son's home again. But Freddie could pass as white to people who didn't know him, with light skin, straight dark hair, and high cheekbones framing a broad face. He did well for himself. He was a savant of sorts, a carpenter, farmer, mechanic, and kept the boilers working at Wayne Memorial Hospital, then at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. He and Naomi brought a home, bought a home in the city of Goldsboro, and he soon acquired three adjacent properties, which he turned into a self-sustaining farm. Their first daughter, Ruth, recalled that they grew butter beans, corn, peas, tomatoes, okra, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, sweet potatoes, and broccoli. For a brief moment, race didn't intrude on the, into their lives as it had before and would later. Their, their neighbors, mostly kin of sort, lived in similar circumstances. If you, if you went there, Ruth said, you'd see children with blue eyes and blonde hair, but everyone was mixed. Freddie's driver's license said he was white. He could eat at a white lunch counter, go to white movie theaters, and get jobs meant for white people. His wife and children only heard about this side of him. They couldn't accompany, accompany him. 
But even Freddie's grasp on that white world was tenuous. Reputation and old records, birth certificates in particular, kept even the lightest people out of color in their box. Maybe if Freddie had moved out of the South, he could have shed the burden of, colored, of the colored label, if he'd wanted to, but not where he was born and raised. Freddie worked in a quarry for a spell, lined up with white workers on payday to get his check. Black workers lined up separately to get paid less for the same job. One day his niece's husband spotted him from the black line and resentful of his passing, called him out as colored. Freddie fumed inside as supervisors ordered him back to the black line. This was one of Ruth's fragments of family lore. Another was that Freddie's uncle on his mom's side was as white looking like him. He found himself in, himself in court once for a car accident, the details of which are long forgotten, and the judge ruled that he was not at fault. Then a man stood up and said, Judge, are you aware that Mr. Johnson is a colored man? The judge did not say, but he doesn't look black to me. He may not even have thought that. In this era, whites could nimbly perform the psychic contortions necessary to winnow down and spot inherent blackness when there was no physical signs of it. According to Ruth's family lore, the judge promptly reversed the ruling. Freddie never completed the two-story house he was building. Heart disease struck him when Ruth was about 10, forcing him to quit his job at the Air Force Base and sell their properties. After his death, the family sank into poverty and moved between old bareboard sharecropper houses working on different farms. Ruth gradually graduated high school at 16 and escaped, going to New York to work as a nanny. She had long, wavy black hair that she now calls Kardashian hair. As a young woman in New York, she was constantly asked what she was. Are you Spanish? Are you Greek? Are you Italian? Are you Hawaiian? Are you Yemeni? She mostly just answered no. If I said I was black, it would just change the, the dynamic, she said. It didn't matter that she looked like those other groups. Black was set apart in the American mind. If she answered black, her inquisitors would mentally inject her with some biological quality imperceptible on the surface but infused throughout, as if deciding she were made of different proteins. Ruth had this happen many times. She remembered having an intelligent conversation with a coworker about a novel or news event until he found out she was black and began asking her, with no apparent ill intention, if New York was a good welfare state. Everyone turned stupid, she told me. For a while, she was living in a home of a Jewish biochemist whose sister she was a nanny for. One night, her host beckoned her to come downstairs during a party and announced to her guests that Ruth was actually black. One woman studied her and then marveled and said, I can't believe it. I didn't know you looked like that. So that's the last of my reading. <laughs> so, yeah, I, so you can see it's a, a lot of the books about these racial fluidity and how these, these definitions we've set out are quite easily to perforated and, and just looking at it through one family kind of really points out the absurdity of it, I think, so. But happy to take questions from this vast crowd. <laughs> well, I, I guess most of you know, I'm just by very happy circumstance met Joe about a week ago at a wedding. <clears throat> there, wedding. <laughs> <laughs> You're very happy. I'm going to have to tell your mother assigned to their table oh, yeah. at dinner. I, we did this. And I, 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 I brought up Jane. I said, oh, I'm writing a book about Jane. I said, I'm writing, I'm writing a 
find this little thing for my grandchildren about our ancestors. And his dad said, oh, one of my sons, you know, Simon Schuster. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so anyway, I came home on Monday, and I have a Kindle, and uh, I downloaded it immediately, and I read the whole thing. And uh, ju I just, I, I, I just think it's astonishing. I, yeah. I was so moved by it. I cannot tell you, and I think you should be so proud. I feel proud of you, almost like you're a son. <laughs> Thank you. Amazing that yeah. someone your age. I mean, I understand. It was you grew up wondering all, you know, about the name. Yeah. But you're a young person to have been so interested in your family. Yeah. It just seems like it must have taken an awful lot of time to do all the research that you did, all the travel yeah. that you did. Yeah, it did, definitely. Although it helped that the LA Times was backing mm -hmm. a good part of it. <laughs> Not the Africa part, which was extremely expensive yeah. and difficult. So oh, that's, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it, and the one thing I learned is, is for most African Americans to try to cross that breach and explore their roots, it's just so difficult to do. I mean, yeah, especially if you don't have a name. I mean, in my case, I was lucky because the odd twist is that the white guy had the African name that most people lost and the record that said he came to Virginia in this exact year. Because then you can look at, there's databases that show where ships were coming from and things like that. So with the name in that year, you could pinpoint much more closely where he would have come from. So, yeah. Any other? So I feel a kinship because I had, I had relatives come from England to Jamestown. Yeah. Yeah. A little well, bit earlier than. Yeah. They're probably all connected. It's yeah. amazing. I yeah. think I think most Americans are who've been here more than five generations are connected somehow. Just like you know, Dick Cheney and Obama are connected, and all those things. It's true, but they are. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Yeah. Did you run into any interesting genealogists along your research? Because genealogy has so many different kind of tracks. There's so many reasons why people dive into their pasts. What they're looking for, you know, and. And, and it's colored by a lot of different things, a lot of reasons for why I am who I am. You know? Yeah, yeah. And not just in a kind of fact, kind of journalistic like facts of the story, but no, yeah, this it's is like how we, this is why I. This is how you came to be through yeah, these exactly. lines, it's it's DNA cool. and everything. Right. Yeah. But it also sort of leans toward, you know, different, you know, kind of these <laughs> fascistic tendencies of, you know. I think, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, first of all, they're all obsessive. I mean, the really good ones are completely obsessive with it. And they get, once they do their own tree, they start doing other people's trees. And, just, and um, you know, I think most, you know, the stereotype is they're all elderly people. And that's somewhat true because, you know, it's something you think about probably more as you, you know, in, yes. near the end of life. Um, but the, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I met, the, the main guy who'd done a lot of the research before any of us was this guy, Tom Mazingo, who, he just was, had the same name bug as me, he's a generation older. He was in Vietnam, and he just kept, you know, wondering about this, and he grew up in Indiana, and it just seemed so strange, and then he met a guy from Cameroon at some naval conference, and, so, and the guy said, hey, we've got that name, <laughs> and he said, what? <laughs> and, 
and he just went on this quest to find it. But then he was in the South and surrounded by people who didn't want to hear what he had to tell them. So he kind of kept it to himself. It's part of the story. But yeah. What I loved, and I think it was someone in Africa who said this to you, um, that to him, going back to the Bible, was God was your ancestors. Yeah, yeah. I'm the older person you're talking about. He was, you know, older, and that's why I'm so into Yeah. I know that's why I'm into my ancestors. But what a beautiful concept. It is an amazing concept. It, it is. Yeah. yeah. As an agnostic, <laughs> for me, that was the first time I thought, wow, that actually makes sense because you do come from your ancestors, absolutely. And they live immortally in you still because your genes go in them and, and whatever behavior you've taught them. And Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> no. <laughs> Lucia was like two months old, so that wouldn't have worked very well. Uh, Blake, I don't know. Did I explain to you? Because I was going to Haiti all the time for just yeah. journalism, so I just said I'm going on another journalism trip. No, it would have been yeah. too hard to explain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I will, though, obviously. Yeah. Oh, she saw her name. I mean, we told her it was her name. Yeah. It's an Italian name, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. So you finding out? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've said this. Latin names go well with Bantu names, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting when I saw you at the Fowler Museum on a panel with um, Dr. Paul Farmer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you were there, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and it was a great, a great afternoon. I wondered, too, what's in the book? That's funny. Yeah. Well, like I say in the book, in Haiti, there's everyone with Mzingo, they just instantly assume it's an African name. So, you know, it's, they have a, a sense of it. And I think, I don't know how it would be if, if, a, if I was really dark and obviously black, if people, then no one would be like, it must be an Italian name. I think they'd be, yeah. What do you consider yourself? Well, I, I, don't, I don't give it a lot of thought. You don't? Yeah. But I don't see how you can at least be, I suggest give it much thought, but it, it's in everything. Our society, race is such an issue in our society. I know. I mean, I have a son. Yeah. He's white, and, you know, I mean, my family is all, you know, my husband, had blonde hair, blue eyes. Yeah. Well, he was in Virginia, that's why I asked what part of Virginia. And everybody in that area, all yeah yeah well I mean in the sh even just the definition of whiteness changed so much I mean Italians used to not be considered white Southern Europeans well what if you're if you're if you're Greek are you white what about Turkish no, that's just that's like right across the line I mean they look exactly the same Egyptians yeah I mean so I think there's a lot of yeah, if you're but Swedish, you're white. In the United States, more so than, than in Europe. Yeah, yeah. I think race is such a troubling situation. But the, I mean, the truth is, if you're white, if you grow up white, you don't think about it nearly as much. You don't go around identifying as white. If you're, I mean, unless you're in a community that's mostly not white, yes. you just think, I am me. Yeah, I think it's it's a, it's not how you really identify yourself. I don't think so. 
I mean, unless you're in a community that has lots of different, you know, if you're in a community where everyone is white, what would be the point of identifying yourself as white? You'd just be. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I mean, the, for, to be anything, the blood percentage is so low, it would be ridiculous. Then it would almost be giving credence to the one drop rule, like, whoa, look. And it, yeah, it does this. I mean, I guess there's probably an outward limit to that. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, but it's true. I mean, the family reunion I went to in um, Indiana, you know, there were, everyone was they called black were like really three quarters white, but it was just still one drop rule. You're, you know, so. Well, I, think, I think that's one thing, I, and I haven't read the book, but I read the article. Yeah. And Margie's been telling me about the book. So, so, I, I'm, so but I think one thing that. Sound like my dad, actually. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> like that. <laughs> it, it seems to me that you didn't set out to write the book about to speak what this lady is saying. You just look at the facts, you know, of the, of the people involved. Yeah. And, and, but in doing that, it comes together later. Us is we're, we're all interrelated. Yeah. You know, and so the, it's kind of ridiculous, some of these ironclad. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I, mean, I just set out to understand how exactly. I had this name. How did this work? And who were, and then my next mission was like, who were these people? And like, it's so far back to 1644, you could just say, oh, well, you know, it's time, things happen in that amount of time. But if you, then if you look, and there's not actually that many people between me and him, there's nine. And it's like, wow. Generations, Generations between me and Edward. So it'd be like, that's amazing. That you go from like the wretched colony of Jamestown to, you know, suburban Southern California in that short of time. Um, so that amazed me, and then so then once you start delving into the history and looking at how they lived and how they were treated, and um, yeah, you start to make those connections at the broader themes. I think it was a brave move on your part. <laughs> I don't know. I was brave, but <laughs> <laughs> I asked them very delicately. <laughs> 
Yes. Right. I'm pretty good at knowing when I'm yeah. about to get punched in the face and should not stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. How did your interview go with the Ku Klux Klan? Did a newspaper article I didn't interview the Klan. There was the, by the time the, in, the Klan people were all in Indiana, and the Klan was is pretty much you know I don't know it's some um, it's. It exists there, but it's not really much of anything. So most of the people were talking about their fathers in being in the Klan. That said, I mean their their racism was you know was the Klan, <laughs> um, which was weird because there wasn't a black person within 200 miles of where they lived. So I don't understand why they harbored such like constant anger about it. Um, well. It, It's not threatening them because they're nowhere near. It's like it would be like I don't know. It'd be like Eskimos being super mad about the Brazilians or something. I mean, it's just like no, there's no, there's no interaction. They're not competing for the same jobs or anything. Yeah. It's learned. It's totally learned. Yeah. So you didn't have much resistance when you were The racist people. Yeah. Yeah. That total resistance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But I know that for them to give you anything, they're very, very resistant, and they always like to cross the arms and get out of Yeah. And I, when I read in the article, I said this is going to be interesting. I like. Yeah. You know, if they gave up anything, if they acknowledged the fact that they might have a speck or a fraction of black blood in them, you know. That's, well, that's the... We ended up on that blog, remember, that list there. Yeah, well, after the stories came out of it, there was a white supremacist site that, you know, had this huge debate off my stories on whether I was could be black. I mean, whether I could be white still. Like, and it was like, oh. they had this big debate and... Back and forth, and it was very, it was actually interesting. Look at, yeah. But they couldn't even agree on what white was. So. Yeah. It's like if you have one shred of native Indian blood, are you white? And and the Germans would say, no, it's impossible. You know, that's mongrels and all this these language. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. I wanted to get to the clan people, but it never directly affected anyone that I was focusing on the story, so it would have been kind of irrelevant. It, but the, um, it, so no, no one was admitting any crimes or anything. <laughs> but they were admitting their racism. They were perfect, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're Christians who hate this person, that person, the other person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they're getting more marginal, don't you think? Yeah. Do you think they're getting more marginal? I think they get more, more marginal, more bolder. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> it's just a matter of time before they finally figure out. I mean, because I just, you go through so many of these towns and you look in the Walmart parking lot and it's just, everyone's mixing, you know, just couples. And it's like, how could this 
continue if this is what's happening with the young people, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.